1961, the U.S. military carried out the last execution after court-martial. As of the time of this recording, that is, Army Private John Bennett's conviction was for the rape and attempted murder of an 11-year-old girl in Austria. This case brought up questions of race in our military justice system and if mental health should factor into sentencing. Currently, five men are on the military's death row, including Timothy Hennis, who was the subject of an episode of Insight and an episode of Death Store podcast. And joining me tonight to cover this case is the host of Death Store's podcast, Dominique Mix. This episode does involve violence against children, and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me tonight is my guest, Dominique. Hi, Dominique. Hi, good evening, everyone. Do you want to tell us really quickly about your podcast? Sure. So I host Death Store Podcast, and it is a podcast that investigates different cases from America's death row. Uh, We cover cases um, that include people who have been executed, people who have been exonerated, and um, everything in between. So, and it te- we tend to focus on cases that are lesser known. Um, we are a bi-weekly show, so I would encourage you to tune in if that's a topic that you are interested in. And in addition to being the host of Death Store Podcast, I also do legal work in both this area and wrongful convictions. So it's something I'm very passionate about. And I'm very excited to be here to discuss this case. I want to thank Jim Goodluck from the Forgotten News podcast for recommending this topic. And as soon as he recommended this topic, I thought we need to have Dominique on to cover it. Also, I want to thank Jessica Bentoncourt for her help with research on this case. So today's case is a little different, and that's not just because Allie isn't here, but also because we're going to tell the story of the convicted rather than the story of the victim. We actually don't know a lot about the victim. She lived through the attack, and she was a child at the time. Her privacy was hopefully respected over the decades since this happened, and we hope that she healed and was able to rebuild her life. Today, we're going to go back to the childhood of the convicted, which was largely self-reported, and then move through the crime and talk about the trial and the penalty. And thankfully, Dominique is here to give us some legal context to what we're talking about. As usual, we did use a variety of sources, but the definitive piece on this was done by the LA Times in 2000. Much of the background information on Army Private John Bennett comes from that. John Bennett was born into an African-American sharecropping family in Virginia on April 10th, 1935. Sharecropping, for those who don't know, is a situation where the farmers work someone else's land in exchange for a share of the proceeds from the sale of the crops at the end of the season. Debts incurred in the process of farming were the responsibility of the sharecroppers. The landowners provided the land, but Other people sold sharecroppers seeds and other necessities for the crops, and others rented them equipment. 
This led to sharecroppers barely being able to break even, particularly because many of the laws outlawed sharecroppers from selling their crops to anyone other than the owner of the land. So most sharecroppers were very poor, particularly during the Great Depression, and John's family was no different. John had three older siblings, and his mother had major complications during his birth. She said she had a quote-unquote fit and remained unconscious afterwards. Her recovery was incredibly slow. My modern-day guess, knowing that a fit is common language for a seizure, she may have had a condition called eclampsia. We often hear of preeclampsia, which is a condition where there's high blood pressure and protein spilling into the urine. Eclampsia is what we call it when it progresses into seizures, which thankfully is much more rare today with routine prenatal care and medications to treat hypertension. As a child, John fell from a tree and reported having headaches for quite some time afterwards. He also heard voices when he was in bed, clear enough that he would go around the house looking for the source, but these were voices no one else heard. So most of the things mentioned that were odd in his childhood were actually probably quite normal. He wet the bed until he was school age, so we're probably talking around six or seven, and that's totally normal. He was very afraid of thunderstorms, which again is really normal, and he also had night terrors, which is very common for children. However, the voices in his head and the head injury are things that really make you wonder. There have been published medical studies that show that individuals with traumatic brain injuries, particularly those with family members with a history of mental illness, have an up to 60% increased chance of developing various types of mental health issues, and that does include schizophrenia. However, because it was the 1950s, well before these studies were conducted, John's issues went largely ignored. Now, the voices in his head and the head injury are things that really do make you wonder, but it wasn't reported that the voices happened any time other than when he was in bed and possibly even asleep. So it could indicate a vivid imagination or realistic dreams. The fall from the tree and the headaches after could have been symptoms of a concussion. It's something that we'll never actually have a definitive answer on. So I said most other things were quite normal. There is one thing we need to discuss that may or may not be normal. It very much depends on a lot more than we know through the reporting. He self-reported engaging in sex play at the age of five or six. And we don't really know what this means, and curiosity is very normal for children. But if it was more aggressive or if he was acting out sexually, it could very easily be an indicator of sexual abuse. And on the topic of abuse, it has been reported that he would get switched occasionally, but there aren't any indications of other physical abuse. As was not atypical of the time, he quit school in the seventh grade, so he would have been around 13 years old, and he went right to work. He reported being promiscuous and losing interest in his girlfriends rather quickly. He found himself in minor trouble in April of 1953, which is when he would have been turning 18, when he was sued for breach of marital promise and ordered to pay $30 a month in child support for an infant. 
In August of 1953, he was 18 years old. He was inducted into the army, likely as a way to try to climb out of poverty. He already had two brothers in the service. A month before he enlisted, the Korean War ended. It's possible he started the process before the war ended, but in the end, he would be enlisting during peacetime. And that makes his case even more notable. It's the only execution because of a rape charge that occurred during peacetime. He wasn't in the service long when he started complaining of issues. He said he had epilepsy and had experienced seizures since he was a child, and he could even tell when a seizure was coming on because of a pain in his ear that was followed by a period of memory loss. He also had other complaints as well, such as dizziness, body weakness or fatigue, and cyanopsia, which is also known as blue vision. This meant everything he saw would appear to be blue or blue-tinted for a period of time. Since he also complained of headaches, it's possible that this blue vision was related to migraines. In addition to his own symptoms of neurological issues, he did have a family history of significant mental health issues. His grandfather died in a state insane asylum, and he had a great uncle who had been institutionalized as well. Both had very serious drinking problems and alcohol being used to self-medicate a mental illness has a very long history. He also had a cousin who committed suicide. The army did do a check on him both physically and psychologically, but found nothing wrong with him, or at least nothing that they could detect in the early to mid-1950s, and he was kept on active duty. Bennett was stationed in Austria at Camp Roeder in the winter of 1954, he had a serious drinking problem that had developed in his teen years on top of the neuropsychiatric issues he was displaying symptoms of. On December 21st, 1954, Bennett, by his own admission, spent the day out in town drinking a large amount of beer and liquor with some friends. Someone who was later identified as Bennett was seen by several witnesses walking around starting as early as 9.30 in the morning. He alarmed multiple residents by barging into their homes, asking for a woman named Margaret or Margette. It's believed he was looking for a brothel, as he was known to frequent them. He left each home without issue when he was told the woman wasn't there, so he wasn't displaying any violence at this point. At around 5 p.m., an 11-year-old girl named Gertie had just gotten off the bus from Salzburg, where she had gone to buy some little items, a calendar for the new year, some sewing supplies for her mom. While she was walking home across a meadow, a man who she later identified as Bennett grabbed her and raped her. After the rape, he threw her into a large puddle of water face down. She pretended to be dead or unconscious, hoping he would leave. The man then grabbed her and threw her into a stream nearby that was 11 feet wide and about three or four feet deep. Again, she stayed as still as she could, and when the man left, she got herself out of the water. I mean, this is one incredibly strong little girl. She got herself to a nearby residence and banged on the door. And the door was that of a U.S. Army sergeant, and his wife took her in and got help for her. 
Now, it's entirely unclear how we get from this point in the story to them identifying John Bennett as the man who attacked her. The only description the girl gave at the time was that her attacker was a black man. Bennett, in the meantime, had returned to base and was watching a movie at the base theater when the authorities came for him at 9 p.m. that night. Now, it is entirely possible that the way that they got from the crime to the identification of John Bennett was the fact that he had been having these episodes looking for this woman and barging into so many people's homes. And that erratic behavior created a series of witnesses who identified him as somebody who could have been the attacker. And it's also unclear as to whether he was legitimately looking for a brothel or if this was potentially something that was coming out of a schizophrenic episode and he was hearing voices who were telling them to look for this woman. Regardless, Bennett initially admitted to the attack, though he characterized it differently. He claimed that he was with a friend and the friend dared him to have sex with her. He said he did not want to force her, but rather she went with him willingly and it was consensual. Now, this would still be considered a crime because she's 11 years old and so she's not able to consent. He would later say that he was coerced at gunpoint to make this statement and he was also promised a deal by police officers. He said someone else must have raped the girl because he was at the movies at the time of the attack. Now, obviously the idea of being held at gunpoint and being forced to make a statement sounds terrifying. But the reality is that when you look at DNA exonerations in the United States today, one in four of those involve a false confession. And those false confessions actually fairly rarely involve physical harm or the threat of physical harm that reaches the point of being held at gunpoint. So people have a hard time understanding this phenomenon, but there are many factors that go into someone admitting to something they didn't do. A litany of those applied to John's case, including the person being intoxicated, having a diminished capacity, having a mental impairment, and fear of violence, which obviously he would have been experiencing if he was being held at gunpoint. And these are factors that go into false confessions today. So you can only imagine in 1954 when a black man was accused of raping a white girl. This is one of the most inflammatory situations even today. And the reality is in 1954, racism was implicit in criminal accusations against black men. So I'm in no way implying that Gertie or the police got this investigation wrong but I do think it's important to understand the history of racism when it comes to the prosecution of black men and how that factors into convictions and sentencing and how that was openly accepted in the 1950s even more than it is today. So another legal aspect of this that still comes up today is the idea of police officers offering a defendant a deal during an investigation. And this happens all of the time. The problem is that police do not actually have any jurisdiction to offer deals to people that they're questioning or interrogating. The ability to offer a plea bargain is completely within the purview of the prosecutor's office. So even if the police officer explains to the prosecution what they offered, which 
they actually often don't even do. This information is regularly ignored by prosecutors. So really what this boils down to is a very common interrogation technique that's used to get someone to confess and has shown up in many cases involving false confessions. We are going to get further into military trials versus civilian trials, the death penalty, the statistics, and the story of John Bennett after a word from today's sponsor. You are listening to Insight, so I have to just assume that you like mysteries. Well, we don't exactly have a great track record at solving the mysteries here on Insight. If solving mysteries is something you're interested in, you need to try out Dispatch, an interactive serial story that's delivered directly to your door. This is a new experience from the creators of the Breakout Escape Rooms, only you don't even have to leave your house. This storyline has it all. You are a character in it. You get your delivery and you find yourself entangled in the strange disappearance of your closest childhood friend, who also happens to be suspected of killing his wife, a well-known heiress. You use physical clues, there are details embedded online, and you follow each thread to deduce what is fact, what is fiction, and what is the truth. Your detective skills will be tested with new sets of clues every month. You get clippings, mysterious objects, and hidden websites. My family has had so much fun pouring over all these details, a little bit of tugging back and forth on the evidence because everyone has to see it. Each tale is unfolding over several deliveries, so you're getting new helpful clues in every box. I'm using my box as a family game, but it can be worked on alone. It could be a monthly game night for friends. It has that kind of flexibility. If you're intrigued, you can satisfy your curious mind with 50% off your first delivery. Go to breakoutdispatch.com slash insight and use the code insight to subscribe today. That's breakoutdispatch.com slash insight, code insight. So a little background on the difference between a military tribunal and a civilian trial. In 1950, Congress adopted the Uniform Code of Military Justice the UCMJ. The purpose was to require a thorough and impartial investigation before charges could be referred to a general court-martial. The new code sought to minimize the risk of command influence. And that's something that we actually saw come up in the Bo Bergdahl case recently, and whether or not there was attempts at command influence in bringing charges against him. And it does this by requiring there be a thorough and impartial investigation before the charges can be referred to the general court-martial. Just to be clear, John Bennett was tried in a military tribunal because he was in the service at the time he committed his crime. John still had the right to counsel and his Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate himself. But unlike civilian trials, the commander selects the jurors who outrank the defendant. And from what I understand, the person selecting the jurors, which they're called members, doesn't even need to be an attorney. Until about 10 years ago, the jury in a death penalty trial could be as small as three people or as large as 12. Now it's required that it's 12 individuals with four alternates. Now a jury in a military tribunal has to reach a unanimous verdict on a death penalty case, 
But in the 1950s, it only had to be two-thirds of the jury in order to sentence someone to death. Additionally, unlike civilian trials where you're sentenced on each count, so in this case, John Bennett was taken up on two counts, one for rape and one for attempted murder, but the rape count was the one that they really pushed in the trial. Under the UCMJ, the jury decides on an overall sentence, not for the individual charges. Another big difference is that the defendant cannot plead guilty in order to have the death penalty taken off the table, which is very common in civilian trials. But back to John's case, his court-martial was swift. It occurred about a month later. The charges were rape and attempted murder. Like I said, the attempted murder for having thrown her in the creek and leaving her there, presumably attempting to drown her. The court-martial occurred in Austria, and Gertie testified and pointed John out from the stand. And this must have been incredibly difficult for her, and you have to give her a lot of credit. She was 11 years old, and she was pointing out in open court the man who had sexually assaulted her and attempted to kill her. However, it's also important to keep in mind that Gertie's identification of John was the only piece of evidence used to convict him. And this doesn't mean that she got it wrong. But as we've watched people who have been exonerated by DNA, there's been an alarming trend that has come to light. And that is that eyewitness misidentification is involved in over 70% of exonerations. And even more alarming is the fact that cross-racial identification is one of the most unreliable types of evidence. In fact, one study showed that even in the most controlled circumstances, it was approximately 45% accurate, meaning that more people got the identification of someone wrong than right. The court-martial lasted five days, and he was convicted within 25 minutes of deliberation. The jury recommended that he be sentenced to death, and he was flown to the disciplinary barracks at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas, which is where the military death row is still housed. So I'm not saying that Bennett was innocent, as I continue what I'm about to say. Technically, he's guilty because he was convicted. I just think that today we have forensic technology, such as DNA, that would have given us much better evidence against him that would remove this doubt. There was also pressure for there to be a swift arrest, as there tends to be any time a U.S. soldier commits a horrific crime while stationed in another country. There were four hours between the attack and his arrest and one month from his arrest to his trial. Bennett has no previous history of sexual violence that they were able to even use against him. For his defense, according to the L.A. Times article, there really wasn't much of one. He didn't testify, and his mental health history was never brought up. But even if his attorney did the best he could with the case, there was only that one month between arrest and court-martial. So you have to wonder if there was even enough time to mount a vigorous defense. Generally, when it comes to a death penalty trial, if you have competent attorneys representing a defendant, it's going to take about a year or longer to prep for trial. And the main reason for that is because every single piece of evidence, every witness testimony, 
there's so much that goes into prepping this. You have a ton of pretrial motions, which include motions in limine, which are basically just motions between the prosecutor, the defense, and the judge, where the judge makes a rule as to whether or not evidence can come in based on the defendant's rights. You have discovery motions, which are basically just motions filed on each side asking the other side to turn over evidence, particularly the defense asking the prosecution to turn over any information or evidence that they've received, especially if it's exculpatory, which is just a fancy word for saying it points to the defendant's innocence or it could help them at trial. So all of that being said, it really should take at least a year to sufficiently prep for this kind of trial. And to go into a little bit of history about that, I will say that there are also huge differences between how death penalty trials worked in the 1950s and how they work now. In 1976, and this was a civilian decision, but in the case of Furman versus Georgia, the Supreme Court held that the death penalty was unconstitutional, but not because it was a violation of the Eighth Amendment protection against cruel and unusual punishment. The reasoning behind the decision was that the death penalty was being arbitrarily applied and the states had to develop systems so that they could basically identify the worst of the worst so that the death penalty was no longer applied in an arbitrary process against those who were facing the death penalty. So this led to some states attempting to have everyone who was convicted of first-degree murder immediately sentenced to death, and that was also struck down as unconstitutional. So just to go into how death penalty trials work today, in order for somebody to be capitally indicted, they have to be charged with first-degree murder, and then they also have to be charged with aggravating factors. Basically, what that means is that each state lays out aggravating factors that categorize what type of murder a person can be capitally charged for. And it's different in every state. So, for instance, in Ohio, it's very clear there are things like murdering a child under the age of 10, murdering a police officer murdering or attempting to murder more than one person. But then in other states, it can be something like you're a future danger to society or the crime was heinous, atrocious, and cruel, which is also known as the hack ag. And all of this comes into play once somebody is found guilty of the actual murder. Then there's a bifurcated trial, which basically means that there's a sentencing trial after the guilt phase, and the same jury is used. But at that point, the prosecution can put on evidence of these aggravating factors, and then the defense can put on evidence of any mitigating factors that they believe would convince the jury that their client should not be put to death. At that point, the jury has to both find that the aggravating factors were proven beyond a reasonable doubt, and then they have to weigh whether or not the mitigating factors outweigh the aggravating factors. This does have to be a process that the jury decides on, 
even if the defendant had a bench trial, which just means that a judge decided their guilt or innocence. So that's how it works today. It was very different when John Bennett was facing the death penalty. But I will say that in 1983, the Armed Forces Court of Appeals held that the military capital sentencing procedures were unconstitutional because there was no requirement for finding individualized aggravating circumstances. So now military capital trials do mimic civilian trials, but when John Bennett was facing the death penalty, it was very different. In the military today, you can still face the death penalty for crimes other than murder if you're court-martialed. And these crimes are mutiny, espionage, improper use of countersign, which is basically telling somebody your code word, aiding the enemy, and rape. There are also crimes you can be sentenced to death for, but only if you commit them during wartime, and those include desertion, assaulting, or willfully disobeying a superior commissioned officer, acting as a spy, or misbehavior of a sentinel or lookout. But in civilian life, you can only be sentenced to death for first-degree premeditated murder or murder during the commission of a felony. In 1977, the Supreme Court held in Coker v. Georgia that someone could not face the death penalty for rape of another adult. And then in 2008, in Kennedy v. Louisiana, the Supreme Court was faced with a case where a man had been sentenced to death for the brutal rape of his eight-year-old stepdaughter. The court held that it was unconstitutional to impose the death penalty for the rape of a child. Today, it is unconstitutional to sentence anyone to death who has not committed first-degree murder with aggravating circumstances in civilian court. John's first appeal was his habeas appeal. And habeas appeals have a long and very complicated history. And I won't go into it too deeply other than to say that it's when you appeal any federal constitutional violations that happened during your trial or post-conviction appeals in federal court. At the time of John's habeas appeal, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the tribunal only considered whether the court-martial had jurisdiction of the person and the offense charged, and whether they received due process based on the UCMJ. So his habeas petition was dismissed, with the court stating that the military did have jurisdiction over his case and that he did receive due process under the UCMJ guidelines. John ended up appealing this ruling, and his case eventually made it to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. So the court denied John relief on procedural grounds. The issues that John raised were whether or not his confession was voluntary, the competency of his counsel, and the hostility and racial prejudice during his trial. The court denied John relief on procedural grounds, and basically what that means is that his attorney did not raise these issues at the first available point that he could. I say that all to say that your attorney has an obligation to raise a constitutional issue at the first available point in your appeals process. And if they don't, down the line, the federal court system will reject your appeal, not because of its merits, but because 
it was not raised at the first point that it could have been. However, just because these issues were struck down based on jurisdiction doesn't mean that they didn't have merit. And one issue in particular, which was the hostility and racial prejudice during his trial, has an interesting history. So whether this racial prejudice during his court-martial existed or not, we don't entirely know. The girl did identify her attacker as a Black man, so that's not in dispute. But the handing down of the death penalty and the carrying out of it, that's another story. It's hard to dispute there was a racial bias here. Looking at World War II, there were 70 soldiers executed in Europe during the war, 79% of them were African-American, even though African-Americans made up less than 10% of the army. Looking at the period of time Bennett was in the service, there were 12 executions carried out from 1954 until Bennett's execution in 1961. 11 of them. So there were 12. 11 were African-Americans. And we're not just talking about the sentencing. Yes, Black service members received the death penalty more often than white service members, even when facing the same charges. But even after sentencing, white service members more often had their sentences reversed or commuted. I don't want to sound like we are minimizing the crime here. What happened to this little girl is horrific. But the six white men on death row at the same time as Bennett, who were never executed... Their crimes included murders. Bennett was the only one there for a violent offense that did not result in a death. He remains the only soldier executed for rape during peacetime. Two of the white men released while Bennett was on death row were convicted in the murders of children. So we can't even rationalize that it's because the victim was a child that Bennett faced a more severe sentence. These other victims were also children. Maurice Schick, for instance, he was convicted in 1954 of the murder of Susan Rothschild, who was an eight-year-old daughter of an army colonel where he was stationed in Japan. He admitted he killed her, claiming he was insane at the time. His defense was rejected and he was sentenced to death. President Dwight D. Eisenhower commuted his sentence to life in prison without parole. However, there were some legal issues that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court And he was granted a later pardon from President Gerald Ford, and that gave him the option of parole. And what I found looking through obituaries, it appears he died in 2004 in Florida, a free man. And after Schick's conviction, a six-year-old girl named Yumiko Nagayama was kidnapped, raped, and horrifically murdered in Okinawa. I wish I could erase the details of this from my brain. U.S. Marine Isaac J. Hurt was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. His sentence was later commuted to 45 years in prison, but he was eventually released. And from what I can find, I believe he's still living and living in the United States. He's very elderly. He maintained his innocence throughout, but this incident is still known as the Yumika Chan incident, which fueled anti-American occupation sentiments in Okinawa. So these two men, convicted of crimes similar to what Bennett was convicted of, except their victims were murdered, were both released from prison. And Eisenhower, the same president who initially commuted Schick's sentence, declined the same for Bennett. In fact, he signed the death warrant in July of 1957, and Bennett's first execution date was set for August 29th, 1957. 
There were interventions to stop his execution almost immediately after he was convicted. There were the usual appeals, but there were also a number of psychological examinations. In 1956, it was recommended he not be executed due to his mental illness, but this did not help in the least, and many believed he was faking his mental illness. So just to get into this a little bit, the standard today that's used in order to decide whether someone is competent to be executed or whether or not they're quote unquote insane, and I use that word because it is the legal terminology, is a two-pronged test, and that is whether they understand the crime they committed and whether they understand that that's what they're being executed for. If you want more information about this, I'll give you a little plug for Death's Door. There's the case of Ricky Ray Rector that I covered, and the issue of competency came up a lot in his case. He was found competent to be executed, and he was executed. And the day after he was executed, guards cleaned out his cell. Now, he was known to wrap up his dessert and save it for the next day. And when they cleaned out his cell, they found a piece of pecan pie wrapped up that he had saved for the day after his execution. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of how competency is actually evaluated at this point and some things that are very problematic about it. So the Supreme Court has stated that states can actually decide on how they make that determination And most have some form of a panel of psychiatrists who evaluate the individual and give their professional opinion on the matter. But at the time of Bennett's case, that standard didn't exist. And decisions regarding competency were basically cobbled together by different courts on an arbitrary basis. And there's no doubt that racial bias played into those decisions. Now, the U.S. Court of Military Appeals wrote in August of 1956, quote, Seldom, if ever, have we been faced with a record which revealed a more vicious offense or an accused who had less to entitle him to any consideration, which is somewhat of a ridiculous statement, figuring Maurice Schick had already been convicted of murdering a young child and Isaac Hurt had been arrested a year before for an incredibly brutal murder of a child. Now, it's hard to find statistics from the 1950s, but keep in mind that this is a time when Black people were still being lynched. And even if you look at statistics today, since 1976, when the death penalty was reinstated, 20 white defendants have been executed for murdering Black victims. 289 black defendants have been executed for murdering white victims. So it's very easy to see that there are huge racial disparities in this country that remain today when it comes to the death penalty, even though the Supreme Court ruled that it could be reinstated only if it was not applied in an arbitrary way. Bennett's family and his commanding officer wrote to the president to ask him not to have Bennett executed, but it didn't help. Bennett wrote and still got nothing, so he was moved off death row to the cell where those who are about to be executed stay in the days leading up to the execution. Eventually, though, he was given a last-minute stay while his attorney appealed 
based on jurisdiction issue that we talked about claiming the case should have gone to the criminal court in Austria and not through the military. The appeal was denied. But when an appeal is denied, you can appeal that decision to a higher court. That's what Bennett's attorneys did, which kept the case active. Because of this, he couldn't be executed and he was sent back to death row. A new date was eventually set, and this would be March 10th, 1960, but this was again delayed in the 11th hour. Bennett had already ordered his last meal when word came that they were going to get to appeal again based on Bennett's epilepsy. So he was moved back to death row, and it was again recommended that he not be executed due to his mental illness. This managed to delay things until a new president was elected, John F. Kennedy. Kennedy was more liberal than his predecessor, and there was hope for the sentence to be commuted or clemency granted, which was Bennett's only hope at this point as his second set of appeals failed and he had no more left short of finding new evidence. He was facing a third date, April 13th, 1961, which would be just three days after his 26th birthday. Bennett actually had three somewhat unexpected telegrams arrive at the White House on April 6th on his behalf. One was from Gertie's mother, one from her father, and one from her. From her mother, it said, quote, My daughter has been ruined physically and mentally for her entire life. I suffer terribly with my only child. Bennett's death cannot give us back her health, and therefore I do not object to a milder sentence. Her father stated, quote, I know how hard it is for the parents when their own child is so close to the verge of death. It may be just as hard for the parents and relatives of the convicted Bennett. And from Gertie, who at the time was 17 years old, stated, quote, I consent to a commutation of the sentence since even his execution could not eradicate what has happened. But in the event the convicted should ever be released from prison, I request that as long as he lives, he never be permitted to return to Europe again. So this actually brings up a really fascinating issue, because closure for the victims' families is one of the main reasons that people argue that the death penalty should be kept in the United States today. But when you look at the families of murder victims who in studies are referred to as, quote, co-victims, it's been found that only 2.5% of those co-victims have reported that the execution of the person that murdered their loved one actually helped them heal. 20.1% of co-victims reported that it did not help them heal. So it isn't surprising that Gertie's family, as well as Gertie, pushed for John's life to be spared. It is a fallacy that this process always brings closure, and Gertie's family is an example of this. On April 8th, final word was sent to Bennett that the president would not be interceding on his behalf to stop the execution, and Bennett was again moved to wait for his sentence to be carried out. Bennett did send a telegram to the president asking him once again to spare his life on April 12th, but this was denied. A few minutes after midnight on April 13th, 1961, John Bennett was hanged after six years on death row. His last words have been reported differently, 
In one telling, he said, quote, I wish to take this last opportunity to thank you and each member of the staff for all you have done on my behalf. The other is saying that his last words were, quote, may God have mercy on your souls. From what we found in the research about John Bennett and even his personality, I think the first one, thanking the prison staff, is probably the more likely version of his last words. So just some closing thoughts on the John Bennett case. I will say that, first of all, this crime obviously was horrific. And the fact that this 11-year-old girl went through this, there's absolutely no excuse for it. I will say that there are many parts of this case that are disturbing in terms of John Bennett actually being the correct person who was identified. And that's based on current statistics around eyewitness identification. I will also say that even though my podcast focuses on the death penalty, that I loved covering this case because it gave me the chance to really dig into how the military handles death penalty cases, which I don't know about you, Charlie, but I found to be really interesting because it does tend to be so different from civilian cases. I always feel overwhelmed when we take on a case that has any type of military aspect like the Timothy Hennis case. You know, I have a common knowledge of the law. I've not been to law school, so I don't have this in-depth knowledge of our civilian law more than what I've read a lot about. But the military seems like it always happens in such a more closed environment that I can't watch these trials to learn the language and the procedure and the case law. So I feel really out of my depth. So I was really glad to have you come and fill in those blanks for us or this episode would have no background. So there are currently five men on death row at Fort Levensworth. One is Timothy Hemnes, and I recommend that you listen to both shows' episodes on his case. It's a very fascinating case. Ronald Gray has been on death row the longest. He was convicted in 1988 for two murders and a series of rapes in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is the same city that the murders that Timothy Hennis was convicted of took place in. President George W. Bush approved his execution in 2008, and a date was set, but he was given a stay later that year to pursue additional appeals. In 2016, his stay of execution was lifted, and his most recent appeal was denied in 2017, but a new date for execution has not been set. The President of the United States has to approve these executions. President Barack Obama approved none and even commuted the sentence of one man on the military death row, Dwight Loving, just days before he left office. It's unlikely the current U.S. president, who is a conservative who has a long and vocal record of being pro-death penalty will commute any of these, and he may even approve them if appeals run out before he is out of office. He has said multiple times that he believes the death penalty should be used more commonly, and not just for murder, but also drug dealing and rape. 
So while John Bennett was the last man to be executed by the military, and it has been 57 years, it's possible we will see another military execution in the not-so-distant future. 